The Water Values Podcast, Session 82. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey. And thanks for joining me. I just want to say thank you to you all for an amazing month. Last month, March 2015, was absolutely incredible. There were we blew away the previous download record, uh, and it was it was fantastic. So I just appreciate all the support that you've provided, uh, and that includes giving ratings and reviews like Dan Thuy did this past week on iTunes. And Dan, I apologize if I butchered your name there, uh, but Dan gave us a five star rating and a glowing review on iTunes. So thank you very much, Dan. Really appreciate that. I also want to thank Kai Olson Sawyer. For all the nice tweets he had about the podcast that we did uh, with Charles Fisherman, that was uh, Podcast 82 a couple weeks ago. So really appreciate it, Kai. Thank you so much. Now on to the show. Uh, Keith White, the CEO of Ambient Water, joins us today to talk distributed water and the possibilities with Ambient Water's products will stretch your mind. We'll have to listen to understand the possibilities uh, don't just involve the production of water, but extend well beyond that to include energy, Food and disaster recovery applications. So this is this is going to be a great great episode, um, and you're really going to enjoy this one. So with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Keith, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, to start off, Keith, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got somewhat of a manufacturing background. Uh, in the early 90s, uh, I was manufacturing some uh, products that uh, I invented uh, in uh, Chengdu, China, believe it or not. And uh, so I got interested in this technology as an idea, as a viable source, alternative source for fresh water supplies. And uh, that would have been back in 1996. I began the process of developing this technology. So uh, not only am I CEO of Ambient Water Corp, uh, but I'm the original uh, inventor of the technology. And uh, so from 1996, uh, I began the process of prototyping this technology and all the way through to today's date where we're uh, fully commercialized in the technology from residential products to commercial products and all the way uh, up into large uh, bulk water supply systems, Dave. Oh, terrific. Now, uh, kind of curious with that background, when you were in uh, when in Chengdu, China, did did the water supplier, the quality of the water, or anything like that, did that did that kind of lend itself to you coming up with this with this idea, or did it contribute to you coming up with this idea? No, no, not at all. It's just one of those things where a person has somewhat of an epiphany, and uh, you know, when you see uh, when you see a standard dehumidification unit. Functioning, of course, the byproduct of dehumidification is water. <clears throat> Although you can't drink that water without harming yourself, but uh, <laughs> so that was somewhat of the catalyst uh, for for this technology, uh, and that's the reason that I began. And originally, uh, I began to develop the technology with a desire to to be able to give it away for free or to supply water for free to all of the children in different parts of the world that are dying on a daily basis and a weekly basis 
because of contaminated drinking water or lack of uh, water altogether, as is happening more and more as the world continues to experience water stress. And that will continue on uh, well into 2025, 2030, 40, and 50, and so forth. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think uh, water stress is here for the foreseeable future. I don't think we're ever going to get away from it. Um, uh, but, but let's talk a little about that technology. Um, you you kind of, uh, I guess, analogized it to a dehumidifier. Can you tell us, you know, how, how does ambient water's technology work? Yeah, yeah. From, from a layman's standpoint, I've often referred to it as dehumidification on steroids. But uh, basically, we're replicating exactly what nature does. So uh, uh, oftentimes when uh, you wake up in the morning, there's a bunch of dew that's gathered on your car or on your grass or whatever whatever may be. And uh, that's precisely what we do. We replicate what nature does. So we create a dew point uh, inside of these units uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so... Uh, so when you look at it from that standpoint, it seems fairly straightforward. But the application of actually creating the water on a cold surface, um, maintaining that water on the cold surface, a water droplet, and then condensing it into a centralized uh, storage vessel and then cleaning the water and keeping it bacteria-free um, is not such an easy task to do. It may seem easy on the surface, but uh, I would say it took me... Uh, about a good 10 years to figure out how to gather enough water, uh, especially in low humidity situations and in situations where the air temperature is high. Uh, it took me a good 10 years to figure out how to do that and also how to keep the water clean. And uh, so uh, after 10 years, of course, <laughs> during that process in the, in the 2000s, we had more failures than successes, but uh, that's only a, as a result of being an, an inventor and there's no historical data that we can refer to when we, we developed this technology. Everything that we did, uh, we did uh, on a first time around. So there is no historical data to refer to. There is no design books to refer to. And so we just had to, to fly by the seat of our pants. So we perfected the technology. And now here we are in 2016, where the world water crisis is hitting epidemic proportions. And we're poised to, uh, to be able to offer an alternate source of water that has so far been untapped. Sure. Now, you you said a bunch of interesting stuff in there. I thought I, one of the things that that caught my attention was pretty early on, and that was when you kind of said inside the unit. So these are are these kind of closed units? I mean, how how does it work? Yeah, yeah. They're they're an enclosed unit, and and so basically, uh, what we do is is we uh, we have a mechanical means to bring in air. So we use a suction fan. And uh, we draw the outside air in. And before, uh, our first line of defense, uh, Dave, is uh, a, a robust air filter system. So we draw in the air, the surrounding atmosphere, uh, by means of a fan. It runs through an a, a, a air filter, and we vary the types of air filters uh, depending on the amount of particulates in the atmosphere. And uh, then as the air passes across the filter, that's our first line of defense, we condense the water on a cold surface, an evaporator, <clears throat> but not just any evaporator because uh, uh, a standard dehumidification or, or an air conditioner evaporator is made out of aluminum fins and a copper tube. And while those evaporators may work well for the purpose for which they're designed, they're not good for making water from the atmosphere. And one of the many, many problems uh, 
that uh, is, is prevalent with those type of evaporators, one of them, for instance, one of the most serious ones, is uh, the fact that as you gather a water droplet on a aluminum fin, uh, there's an oxidization process that takes place and some of the oxides of the aluminum are liberated into the water and you get oxides of aluminum in the water. And of course, we know that uh, many years ago, they used to cook with aluminum cooking pots. And there's a reason why we don't use aluminum cooking pots anymore because it, they made people sick. So people got uh, Alzheimer's kind of conditions. And so, so we had to go away from aluminum fins. We had to develop specialized coatings uh, that had good thermodynamic properties that would achieve what we wanted them to do. Um, and also to prohibit the, the growth of bacteria on the evaporator was another hurdle that we had to work to overcome. As you well know, some, uh, some attribute Legionnaire's disease to uh, what they call in the air conditioning business the dirty sock syndrome. And that's just basically um, bacteria and pathogens that accumulate on evaporators and they have no way to clean them. So we had some major hurdles with that. So after, uh, and which we've overcome uh, in a large way. So after the water is uh, condensed on an evaporator, it drips down into a, uh, a central storage tank. And then uh, once it hits the storage tank, that's where our bacteria control system takes over. And uh, we use an EPA, NSF approved bacteria control system. And uh, so it keeps the water clean. The water is fairly clean when it, when it hits the uh, storage tank. Um, it's basically at that point in the state of rainwater, uh, which is about 5.6 on the pH scale. So uh, through our, our bacteria control system, we control the bacteria. Um, at that point, we filter the water as well. So we use uh, coconut carbon, we use sediment filters, we use calcite, some, some different combinations of filters to raise the pH level. And, uh, and that's a 24-hour a day, seven-day-a-week bacteria control system. And then uh, we dispense it, either remotely uh, dispensing it out of the unit. So if, uh, the water is in a bulk water application and it needs to go to a storage tank, uh, we dispense it to a storage tank. Um, or if it needs to have its own dispensing well where customers can come and fill up a, a five-gallon jug, as in the case of some of the commercial product, that's, we do that as well. And the smaller units have a dispensing well that would accept a cup, so you just fill up your cup of water. The units are fully automatic. Um, they sense when they're full. Uh, they shut down automatically. Um, the bacteria control system is one that uh, it's able to uh, sense when the filters need to be replaced. So that in a nutshell, uh, Dave, is, is what we do uh, with the uh, technology. But there's many other things that take place inside the units that uh, I could describe, but in the auspices of time, uh, we want to keep it to, uh, within our time frame. Um, yeah, you, you bet. Now, uh, I'm imagining just a mammoth machine right now. What? How, how big is this thing? Well, they, they, they vary. Um, we have a facility in uh, South Korea where we manufacture a small residential unit, and uh, that's a countertop-style unit. And uh, that unit produces, depending on humidity and temperature, that unit will produce about five gallons a day. Uh, then we have another facility in Michigan that uh, produces a commercial-style unit for us that's based on a uh, York Johnson Controls uh, air handler. And uh, when we get into the commercial units, Dave, we, uh, we talk about tonnage of cooling. So if you hear me refer to 25 tons, that's not the weight of the unit. That's actually a ton of cooling, and one ton equals 10,000 BTUs. 
And so in uh, Michigan, we produce uh, units that are 25 tons of cooling. Um, that's about uh, four to 600 gallons a day. And then in that product line, in that platform, we go all the way to 150 tons of cooling, which are large units. And they'll produce about uh, 3,000 gallons of condensate per day, depending on humidity and temperature. And uh, we've developed a specialized PLC that we can daisy chain those units together. You know, what's unique about those units in uh, Michigan that we produce, they uh, have the ability to air condition at the same time. Um, so cold air, 55 degree Fahrenheit air, is a byproduct of actually making water from the atmosphere. So in some units, we just vent that cold air to the atmosphere. These units out of Michigan that we produce have the ability to replace a standard HVAC unit that would sit on a rooftop um, and produce air conditioning for the structure, but at the same time produce all the water for the structure. So uh, they can be configured for air conditioning and water production or water production only. And that's a win-win for many uh, building owners because uh, generally they pay for the electricity to air condition the environments that the, the people work in or live in, um, and they also pay for water. So with these particular units, there's a return on investment on the capital cost of the equipment in that they can offset the water cost uh, by using these units to help pay for the equipment, or they can offset the air conditioning cost and get water for free, which is unique uh, in the industry. Interesting. Now we also, sorry, David. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, we also have another uh, facility in uh, Houston, Texas, that produces a uh, more of a robust commercial slash industrial product line. And these, uh, these units are housed in a 40-foot, 20-foot, uh, and 53-foot container platforms. And these are just straight, bare-bones, heavy-duty water-making units. And so we go in those ones all the way from 25 tons of cooling. Uh, and these are, these are high-output units, and so we've doubled the water production. So they'll produce about 800 gallons of condensate per day. And we go all the way up in that platform to 1,000 tons of cooling, which will produce um, in excess of 20,000 gallons per day. And interesting to note, uh, we're just uh, in the early design processes and working with some, some companies in the Middle East um, on using the technology to replace desalination. So we've done some initial uh, rough estimates uh, with a government organization in uh, the Middle East to produce 250 million liters per day, which is about 55 million gallons of water per day to replace desalination. So we have a vast uh, application and repertoire of products that we can use in the field to pretty much service any customer's needs. Hmm. Now, so a, a couple things again. Now, uh, you've answered a couple of my questions about treatment and um the, the, a little bit on the humidity. Now, I assume these these units are going to work best where there is high humidity. That's where they're that's where they're going to be the most, let's say, energy efficient. Yeah, that that's a good question. Our our target market or our sweet spot, um, as as you you might call it, um, is really around the equator. So anywhere between the Tropic of Capricorn and the Tropic of Cancer. Uh, you could draw a hum uh, an imaginary green humidity belt all the way around the globe. And uh, that really is where we get optimum performance. Um, thankfully for us, most of the uh, 
population of the world lives in that humidity belt around the world. Uh, that's not that we can't produce water in drier climates. We certainly can. Um, so anywhere north or south of the Tropic of Capricorn, the Tropic of Cancer, we can certainly make water. Uh, for instance, in the Middle East, uh, when you talk about uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai and Saudi Arabia and areas like that, people automatically think of desert and dry. And uh, in fact, that's not the case. Uh, in some of those locations, for instance, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, it's very, very humid. Uh, so, uh, and of course, the reason being is they're close to a large body of water. So again, uh, anywhere that we're close to a large body of water, we have the high humidity uh, uh, phenomena, and we can make water there as well. Now, we do have a cutoff, though, that being said, where we'll guarantee water production at 40% relative humidity and above. And so we generally uh, use a set point uh, based on a 100-year average of bin data, which is average humidity and average temperature, and we'll engineer to those set points, guaranteeing constant condensate production at 40% relative humidity and above. We can certainly make water below those parameters in the 30% relative humidity and 25% relative humidity situations. But oftentimes the cost of energy to produce that water is just counter is counterproductive. So you may as well, depending on what you're paying for water, uh, find an alternate source like bottled water or trucking water in. Yeah, that was my next question: was how much energy does it does it take to run one of these units? It it, it varies uh, depending on the type of unit and the size of the unit. So uh, we can we can draw up to, for instance, units that produce a hundred thousand or a twenty five twenty to twenty five thousand gallons of water per day. And I'm jumping back and forth between liters and water and gallons because in the U.S. we're gallons, but most of the rest of the world is liters. So uh, 20,000 gallons per day uh, would use approximately uh, 500 uh, kilowatts per hour uh, to run those big units. Now, there are some technologies that we're working with that will allow us to reduce that power consumption significantly. Um, and the technologies are already commercialized in a large way. So uh, we could drop down that energy usage to um, by a third to about 325 kilowatts per hour to produce uh, 20,000 gallons of water per day. So uh, the smaller units, for instance, the residential unit is about 500 watts. Um, a unit that produces about 600 gallons of water today is about a day is about 25 uh, kilowatts. And so they, they vary, Dave, depending on the size of compressors. Um, and the amount of air that we have to move to gather the condensate. Right, right. Um, so you, you've kind of answered my question with when you were describing this humidity belt uh, in terms of the geography where it's used. What about the industries that are using it? Uh, there, there, are, uh, there are a lot of industries currently looking at this technology as a viable source uh, to augment or replace their current water supply. And so I can give you some examples. For instance, we talked about desalination. Uh, a lot of countries now are looking at uh, atmospheric water production as a viable source uh, against desalination. <clears throat> Particularly in the Middle East, what we've found, uh, and I've traveled there extensively and talking to customers and, and, and government organizations, what they're finding in that part of the world is that uh, desalination, of course, is expensive water. Oftentimes, the, elect the power is 
is subsidized, and so it's difficult to get a, a true estimation of the cost per cubic meter to produce the water. But uh, that's not the real problem. What they're finding is uh, basically desalination, as you well know, is a large reverse osmosis system. So it's a three-to-one system. So two, two parts of the water you get to keep, and one part roughly goes back into the ocean. And what's returned to the ocean on the outfall uh, side of the plants is, is very high in the pH scale, so it's very saline in nature. And uh, what they're finding in the Middle East is it's killing all the marine life. It changes the pH level of the water around the coastal regions, and so the coral reefs die and all the fish die. And so they're looking now for alternatives because they can't keep going this way because pretty soon all the marine life in the coastal regions will die off. And so uh, they are looking at atmospheric water as a viable um, replacement. Another aspect would be uh, India, for instance. We spent some time traveling in India, and uh, there's, they have a large water problem there as well. For instance, uh, some of the large bottlers uh, of water and of carbonated drinks and fruit drinks, uh, they're very popular worldwide, um, um, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, for instance. They're having issues finding enough water just to make their product. And what we found when we were there, for instance, as an example, is uh, some of these bottling plants have moved in. They've bored large wells into the, into the aquifers. And uh, it's a real paradox because around these, uh, around these bottling plants are, are these villages that have perhaps been there for 400 years. And the village people uh, have access to only shallow wells where they drop a bucket down and draw the water back up. What's happened in those locations is because the water table has been drawn down significantly um, by the bottling facilities is that their shallow wells have dried up and uh, they're very poor. They don't have the ability to go and buy water and so they're running out of water. So that's a big problem for the bottlers uh, in that part of the world. Um, other parts of the world, uh, humanitarian agencies are, are looking at a portable unit that we make. Uh, we take the 25-ton uh, unit, which produces about 800 gallons a day. We mount it on a trailer uh, with a diesel generator so it becomes mobile. And we can quickly deploy that to areas in Latin America that they're running out of water and having a huge pollution problem. So there's another application for the technology there. Pretty much any industry or any consumer that uses water, um, they're our customer. I like to, to think of it this way, that everybody in the world, Dave, is our customer. So if you drink water, you're our customer. <laughs> you know, I, um, as you were kind of ticking off that list there, one of the, some of the things that were popping in my mind were like data centers, hospitals, those types of critical infrastructure facilities that, let's say, they get cut off from the, the local water supply and they, they need some minimal amount of water uh, to keep going. And, and I guess from the data center perspective, they could provide the cooling for those facilities on site. Have you had any conversations with those folks? No, not yet, although uh, we have been talking to uh, a company that produces large commercial units for these data centers and uh, but we haven't uh, we haven't gone down that path to spec out a system for that application yet. But uh, certainly uh, any of those structures have a critical need for water, and uh, we feel that we can fit that need. Another interesting aspect of the technology, uh, we're in the processes of of working with uh, some large power companies um, in large corporations in Brazil, for instance, where we've looked at this technology. 
Um, here's an application, Dave. Uh, when you think of the cooling towers from these large data centers, uh, they're energy hogs. They use a lot of energy. And a cooling tower is basically a large swamp cooler. So it's an evaporative cooling uh, system. And uh, perhaps you've seen some of the, uh, the mist uh, rising, water vapor rising from these cooling towers. Uh, one of the things we're looking at doing is gathering uh, that saturated airstream that comes off the cooling towers and uh, running it through our atmospheric water generators, condensing that water back into, uh, into water for system use or cleaning it and, uh, putting and using it for either agriculture or using it for drinking water. So uh, there's another application of the technology. And uh, there's a lot of interest in that in, in uh, the United States in particular. Yeah. And so we're starting to pursue that with uh, some universities, and we'll see where we go with that technology. Yeah, that sounds really fascinating. Um, you, you just mentioned agriculture. What, what kind of agricultural um, applications have you been able to, to penetrate with this technology? Um, there's there's large agricultural applications for what we're doing. So uh, we've teamed up with uh, Western Canada's largest manufacturer of uh, polycarbonate greenhouse structures. And uh, this is a brand new technology, and it has application to what we're doing. And so I can talk about that for a few moments. Uh, I need to get a little technical to help uh, your listeners to understand exactly what we're doing. But a standard uh, greenhouse structure uh, that most people are familiar with a glass greenhouse um, has inherent uh, problems with it. And uh, that's referred to as an open loop system. So in other words, as you grow produce inside a, a glass structure, uh, if the temperature gets too hot inside the glass structure, you have to vent. So they open the louvers and they vent to atmosphere. And what that does to the vegetation, one of the things it does is there's a great, there's a big delta T. So there's a big temperature difference and uh, pathogens love to grow in a temperature difference. It encourages the growth of pathogens. So they get fungus and molds and all kinds of stuff growing on the vegetation, and they have to use um, um, different chemicals to kill those fungus, the fungus and the molds. Um, one of the other problems that uh, they have is that the plants are point-loaded on the top, so the sunlight hits them on the top. So what we've done with BW Global is they have a, a brand-new double-wall polycarbonate uh, type of panel and it's opaque in nature but what's interesting about it is it diffuses about 95 percent of the radiation so instead of the plants being point loaded from the top they get uh, radiation um, at all areas uh, underside of the canopy and so forth and so on so as the plants grow they don't need to drop leaves anymore because they're not uh, reaching for the sun as the as the diffuse radiation hits the underside of the canopy they don't drop leaves, they get more fruit, they get higher yields. Now what's interesting with that greenhouse structure is we've sealed it off 100%. So we're creating our own biosphere uh, independent of what happens outside. So it can be 120 degrees Fahrenheit outside or it can be freezing outside. We don't care anymore because we've sealed off the greenhouse. And what we do with our atmospheric water generators is as the uh, plants grow, Plants transpire water vapor as they grow as part of the growing process. So uh, as the leaves transpire the water vapor, we gather that water vapor uh, back up with our atmospheric water generators. We condense it back into water and we feed it back to the roots of the plants again. So it's a closed loop system. Um, additionally, what we're able to do uh, with these units is we control the environment. 
So we hold the humidity and the temperature at the, in the optimum growing range. And so the plants always have a perfect environment for growing because we're controlling the humidity and the temperature exactly where it needs to be for optimum growth. We're capturing the water and feeding it back to the plants. In addition, the water that's left over from the process, we're cleaning it and dispensing it for drinking purposes. So it's a complete biosphere uh, running uh, um, all on its own. And that has vast applications uh, for the, the, the world agricultural system. And these greenhouses are, in some cases, three and a half stories high. Uh, they can cover many, many acres uh, of area. Uh, and one of the things that uh, we've done as well with BW is we've developed a, a unique greenhouse structure uh, for quick deployment in disaster relief situations. So uh, we have, again, our atmospheric water generators. But what's unique about these generators is they run off of off-grid. So we run off of photovoltaics. And so we do the exact same thing we do in the large greenhouses. We capture the water from the plants. We control the climate. We control the humidity. We make water for drinking. And we do all this unplugged from the grid using photovoltaics. And that has a, a vast ramifications. The 12 by 24 structures can be shipped uh, quickly uh, with our climate control units, our atmospheric water generators. Uh, they can be assembled within two days uh, with a socket, a socket and a ladder. And uh, in areas, uh, for instance, where there's disaster relief and an earthquake, first thing they need is water. So within two days, uh, these units are running unplugged from the grid. They have water. They have shelter. We can ship these units with uh, bean sprouts. And so within a week, they grow their own food, uh, all unplugged from the grid, and they have their own shelter. And so uh, that's a system that we're currently testing right now, actually, and uh, we hope to deploy it in the not-too-distant future. That's that's fascinating. The 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 possibilities are, I mean, almost endless. Um, and you, you kind of mentioned the off grid, the remote stuff. I mean, you could you could deploy these units to areas where you know because this this ha I, to me has big ramifications for things like gender equality, where uh, villages where the the women and girls typically walk, spend a, a big part of their day walking to get water, you could deploy this and potentially uh, th that time could be spent in school or working rather than going to get water. Absolutely. That, we can just take one aspect of this technology that we're developing with BW Global in the greenhouse application. Um, a 12 by 24 structure, uh, we've also developed a vertical growing system that fits with inside this structure um, and that runs off of DC power as well, off-grid. Off and uh, if we deploy the vertical growing environment inside the 12 by 24 structure, they actually get 3x. So it's the equivalent of having a greenhouse that's 36 feet by 96 feet, um, all in a 12 by 24 structure. And that will actually change what happens to uh, these African villages. So uh, the people that have these units can grow enough produce to support their family, uh, and they'll have additional leftover to sell, and that's a revenue-generating event. They'll have enough water for the produce. They'll have enough water to drink. They'll have enough water for their family. And uh, as I said to our partner, more than likely you'll see some of these village people living in these structures because they're climate-controlled, and so they have air conditioning uh, in the hot sun in Africa. And it gives them uh, food security as well. Uh, they know what they're growing. Oftentimes in Africa... 
Not only do they have to go a long ways to get their water, but the biggest problems they have, they're subsistence farmers, and uh, they have problems with animals coming in at night, destroying their crops, and they also, and they also have uh, other village people raiding their crops, stealing their crops, and so they'll have food and water security all packaged up in a 12 by 24 structure unplugged from the grid. And that's just one small application of what we're doing. Um, as you know, the price of food is, is going up and up. There was an article that came out last week that uh, cauliflower now, pound for pound, is more than the price of beef. Uh, in Canada, that is indeed the case. Other island nations, uh, we were talking to a customer from the Marshall Islands, um, from Papua New Guinea, and uh, the cost of their produce is astronomical for them. The shipping costs are astronomical to get tomatoes and cucumbers and so forth. So we're able to provide that produce for them locally, and, and we can do that all unplugged from the grid. So there's great potential uh, for atmospheric water in the greenhouse style of environments, Dave. Well, Keith, this has been a very enlightening conversation we've had. I really appreciate your time. And uh, for those who want to find out a little more about you and about ambient water, where can they go to get that information? Yeah, we're always happy to talk to uh, customers and people that want more information. Uh, of course, we're at ambientwater.com, and uh, we have information there. And, uh, and uh, my phone number is on there as well. We're always happy to take phone calls, Dave. Terrific. Well, Keith, thanks again. Uh, you, were, you were fantastic. Really appreciated your time, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You bet. Bye, Keith. Bye now. Okay. Well, that was my interview with Keith White, the CEO of Ambient Water. Terrific guy. Really enjoyed speaking with him, and I had several takeaways. I thought he was fantastic, but uh, the first was the creativity and perseverance he uh he he demonstrated by developing uh, the ambient water product, and I really thought the the self-contained unit in which people could live in uh, a climate-controlled environment, grow their food, and produce their own drinking water, uh, that was an incredible uh, incredible uh, innovation he's come up with using uh, that type of facility in areas where shelters lacking. Uh, Food and water supplies are endangered. It just seems like a win-win-win all the way around, and I'll be fascinated to see how Ambient Water's products get adopted and how they get used. Um, another takeaway I had was the gender equality issue. Uh, you know, if currently in a lot of developing countries, uh, women and girls are not uh, participating in education and things like that because they are spending a lot of their time going to get water and if if an ambient water product can help produce that water and give women and girls more time so that they can attend school join the workforce do things like that uh, it's going to have a monstrous um, impact on their lives and this is going to provide them more opportunities strengthen their economic situation i think it, it can really make a huge difference in these developing countries so i I'm, I'm excited to see how that plays out uh, if Ambient Waters products get, get adopted in, on a larger scale. Uh, the final takeaway I'm going to have is disaster recovery. And that's a, that's a big issue because, as, uh, as Keith indicated, these units can be delivered on site to a, an area that's been struck by some sort of natural disaster. And they can begin producing water very, very quickly. And so that is a huge issue because water is always one of the things that you got to have very quickly 
uh, as part of these disaster recovery efforts. So uh, the ambient water products, again, fantastic idea. I'm very hopeful and curious to see how they get adopted, especially in what, you know, what he called the uh, humidity belt uh, between the top, Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of Capricorn. So that's that was where, you know, he said his sweet spot was for the ambient water product. So I'm, I'm really excited to see how that gets adopted. Well, the show notes for this episode are posted on thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 82. And if, you get, if you've got something to say, uh, just let me know by emailing me at david at thewatervalues, or you can tweet at me at DTM1993. And as I indicated at the top of the show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn, or whatever other podcast directory you're listening to the show on. Would really appreciate that. Um, so in closing... Please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.